Amen. Please do turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Last week we learned how three of the 12 disciples, Peter, James, and John, were privileged to witness perhaps the most transcendent event ever witnessed by mortal eyes. Jesus took them up on a mountain, and there he was transfigured or metamorphosed in front of them. He was transformed. Luke says he had gone up to the mountain to pray. And Jesus appeared with this brilliance, this unearthly brightness that emanated from his face and from his form. This was followed by the appearance of these heavenly visitors, Moses and Elijah, who came perhaps as as glorified spirits from heaven, and they were recognized for who they were. The two disciples saw this, but Moses and Elijah did not speak to them, but spoke only to Jesus, and they spoke about his exodus, his departure, his death. By this time, having witnessed this, the disciples were terrified. And Peter blurted out something about, why don't we build three tabernacles, one for you, Jesus, one for Moses, and one Elijah. He thought this was a good place to stay. At that point, a cloud enveloped them. Whether it enveloped all of them or whether it just enveloped Jesus and Moses and Elijah, we're not sure. Likely it only enveloped Jesus, Moses, and Elijah because a voice came out of the cloud. And that was the main event. That voice was from God the Father, and he said to the disciples, This is my beloved Son, referring to Jesus, listen to him. And then we considered what was significant about this event of the transfiguration. What was its significance for Jesus and for the disciples? As far as Jesus, remember that six days earlier, Jesus had tried to explain to the disciples that as the Son of Man, he was going to be delivered up to the chief priests and the elders, and he was going to suffer many things and die. And Peter recoiled in horror and rebuked him. Peter didn't want Jesus to suffer. The point is that not even his nearest and dearest friends understood what Jesus was facing. As the Messiah, he was destined to go to the cross, a place of humiliation, a place of agony. But he had no sympathy from anyone on earth. Even his nearest disciples did not understand what he was facing. And so God the Father saw fit to give him some comfort from heaven. There's nobody on earth going to comfort my son. I'm going to give him some encouragement from heaven. And so what would have the transfiguration meant for Jesus? Well, it was a foretaste of messianic glory. It was a foretaste of the glory that he would face on the other side of the cross. He would be restored to glory with his father. It was also the consolation that if nobody on earth knew and understood and could sympathize with him in what he was facing, those in heaven did. Moses knew, Elijah knew, and they encouraged him. And it would also have been the joy of knowing that he was pleasing his father. That's what he came to do. I came to do my father's will, Jesus would say over and over again. And the fact that the father approved of him, this is my beloved son, would have been of great encouragement to Jesus in his path, his sorrowful path to the cross. But what was the significance for the disciples? Well, surely for them, they got a clear glimpse of the glory of Jesus' person They got a confirmation of the truthfulness of Jesus' words, and it was really a correction to them as well. Remember, just a few days earlier, Peter had dared to rebuke Jesus. I'm going to go to the 
I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer many things and die. And, and Peter rebuked him. How dare he? And God the Father is saying, Peter, you don't rebuke my son. You listen to him. So there was a form of correction as well. But now that event is over. The cloud has disappeared, taking with it the heavenly visitors, Moses and Elijah, back to heaven. The transcendent brightness that had overtaken Jesus was gone, and now he's just there in his normal appearance as a man. Probably some of the terror that the disciples had experienced had, had, had dissipated and waned. And they're heading down the mountain with this impression in their minds, emblazoned on their minds and emotions, the event that they had just experienced. And no doubt, you, well, it's hard, not hard to imagine what they were thinking. Can't wait to get back down there and tell the other guys what we have seen, right? Isn't that the way it is when you see something that is really beautiful and glorious? Our friend Jim Gemmel and his wife, Barb, uh, both artists, recently took a trip to California to the West, and they visited some of the national parks. And as I had breakfast with, with Jim a little while ago, he was anxious to open up his phone and, t and show me the beautiful photos of, of these amazing vistas of the national parks, Yosemite and these other parks he had visited. He wanted to share it with, with others. Likewise, Merv and Candace coming back from California with pictures. They, they want to share that experience with others. When you've experienced something stupendous, you don't want to keep it to yourself. You want to share it with others. So no doubt as they're coming down the mountain, the disciples wanted to share this with the other disciples. But if that was their expectation, it was going to be frustrated because as they proceed down the mountain, Jesus tells them, you're not allowed to tell anybody about what you have seen. And then Jesus further unfolds to them the nature of his work. Our text is chapter 9 of Mark, verses 9 to 13. Let me read that passage. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, or better said, um, I think it's better understood in the margin, is um, they kept for themselves that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They were asking him, saying, why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come, come and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. We're going to see three things from this passage. The first thing is the command to temporary silence given by Jesus. Notice in verse 9, as they're coming down the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen. They no doubt wanted to share with the other disciples what they had witnessed on that mountain. And Jesus said, you're not to say anything to anybody. Why the silence? Well, this was not the first time that Jesus commanded such silence, is it? At other times, we've seen in the Gospels, when Jesus worked a miracle, he would either tell the, the person healed or the witnesses, don't tell anybody about this. Why? Why did Jesus command silence in the face of so many of his miracles? Well, we know the reason. We've seen it before. He did not want to fan the flames of misguided messianic zeal. The people of that day understood that the Messiah was going to come as a king. 
and they wanted him to come as a king and rule over the Romans. That was not the kind of Messiah Jesus was. That's not why he came. He came to be a suffering servant of a Messiah, to suffer and to die for our sins, not to be a conquering king. The second time he comes, he will come as a conquering king. But the first time he comes as a suffering servant. But they didn't have that idea. Even the disciples didn't have that idea. And so Jesus did not want to fan the flames of misguided messianic zeal. And if they had told about the transfiguration, that would have poured gasoline on that fire. Wow, he is that glorious a, a being. Imagine what he's going to do to the, Rome, to the Romans. And so Jesus commanded that they be silent. However, he puts a limitation on that silence. Notice what he says. He gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Until. This is the first time that Jesus puts a limit on the silence. Don't tell anybody anything until the Son of Man rises from the dead. Now, why that limit? Why would they not be allowed to tell about what they had seen now, but after Jesus dies and after he rises, then they're free to spread the news freely? Well, this is very revealing. It indicates that Jesus is connecting two things that they were not connecting. Jesus was connecting his glory with his suffering. You see, if they had proclaimed the glorious experience of the transfiguration now, they would have attached that glory to their own messianic ideas that he's going to come as a ruling, reigning king and conquer the Romans. And that was not the purpose of the Messiah. But if his glory was proclaimed after his death and resurrection, then his glory would be associated with his true messianic mission, which was to come and to die for sinners. In other words, Jesus wanted to join together his glory and his suffering. These things needed to go together. Suffering without glory would be, rather glory without suffering would be non-redemptive. If they had proclaimed his glory from the, from the transfiguration without his suffering, there would have been nothing of salvation in that. Remember how Satan tried to get Jesus in the wilderness to accept glory without suffering. Bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Glory without suffering. Likewise, Peter. Satan through Peter tempted Jesus. Oh no, Jesus, you can't suffer and die. That was a temptation to receive glory without suffering. But glory without suffering brings no salvation. Well, likewise, we could turn it around and say suffering without glory brings no salvation either. Had Jesus suffered and not been raised from the dead, what would that have meant? It would have meant that the Father from heaven was not accepting what he had done. You see, the resurrection of Jesus was the Father's receipt saying, I've received payment in full for the sins that Jesus died for. It's a, blank, it's a canceled check saying that what Jesus did was effective, and the Father was confirming that from heaven. But if Jesus wasn't raised, if there was no glory, the Father would not have evidence that he accepted Jesus' payment for sins. So to view Messiah rightly, we have to embrace his sufferings and his glory. They need to go together. 
Jesus was not a conquering king of a Messiah at that time. He was a suffering servant, a sin-bearing Messiah. And so don't proclaim my glory until after I have died and been raised. Then the proper connection will be made. My glory is associated with my suffering. The cross must precede the crown. But then we see the confusion in the minds of the disciples in verses 10 and 11. They seized upon that statement. A better translation, which most of you have, is they kept the matter to themselves. That's probably the better translation. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. So on this occasion, they obeyed Jesus. Jesus said, don't tell anybody. And, and they obeyed. I mean, they just heard a voice from heaven saying, listen to him. So they were inclined to obey. Okay, Jesus said, don't say anything. We're not going to say anything. They kept it to themselves, but they did discuss about rising from the dead. What did that mean? Now, what was their confusion? Their confusion was not about whether there was a resurrection or not. The Jews of that day believed that at the final day, there would be a resurrection from the dead. The Pharisees, in fact, this was a a point of contention between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not. So it wasn't that they didn't believe in resurrection. They did. But they couldn't understand what resurrection had to do with Jesus. Death and resurrection. What does that have to do with Jesus? What what kind of resurrection is he talking about? Is he talking about a a physical resurrection or is he speaking of um, figuratively here? When is this going to happen? Why would he have to die? They had a lot of questions that were confusing them about the resurrection and how it applied to Jesus. Then there was confusion as indicated by the question that they ask. They asked him saying, why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now, why did they bring up that question? Well, they had just seen Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then they remembered that the scribes were teaching that before Messiah comes, Elijah must come. And we read about that in in Malachi chapter 3. The last book of the Old Testament predicts that before Messiah comes, there will be a certain Elijah. I'm just reading from Malachi 3.1. Just turn back a couple of books to the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi 3.1. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So there's going to be a messenger sent before the Messiah comes. Now, chapter 4, 5, and 6 makes it more clear in Malachi. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So the disciples remember that the scribes were teaching that um, before Messiah comes, Elijah is going to come. And so they're wondering, wait a minute, if the Messiah is going to die, how can he die? Because Elijah is going to come before he dies And so you see, they're confused. They're confused about their eschatology. They're confused about 
the order of upcoming events. And so what does Jesus do? He clarifies and he gives them teaching in verses 12 and 13. So they're saying, look, if the Son of Man has to die, then, then why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? How can Messiah die if he must be preceded by the coming of Elijah? And Jesus explains. He said to them, Elijah does come first come and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. All right, now Jesus is going to give the true teaching about these prophecies. Elijah does come first. Jesus affirms the scribes are right. When they understood Malachi, that Elijah is going to come before the Messiah, they were right. They were right about this. Elijah is going to come first. But now he explains. Elijah does come first, and yet how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Elijah is coming first. But now Jesus shifts their attention to his suffering, probably calling attention to Isaiah 53, 4, where it talks about the substitutionary suffering of Jesus, and he will bear their iniquities. He's shifting their attention. They're thinking of Elijah coming, perhaps in a glorious way. And Jesus says, yet how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? He calls their attention back to his suffering. And then he further explains, what is it about Elijah coming? But I say to you, remember back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would say, you've heard that it was said by them of old, but I say to you. Jesus is here talking as the authoritative new covenant lawgiver. I the new covenant lawgiver, I'm going to give you the correct interpretation of Elijah's coming. How is it written of the son of man that he will suffer many things? But I say to you, Elijah has indeed come and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Now, of whom is that speaking? Of whom was it written that he would suffer in this way? Is it speaking of Elijah the prophet in the Old Testament? Well, in one sense it is, because Elijah was mistreated. Elijah was persecuted. Back in 1 Kings 19, we read this. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make it your life as the life, make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid, Elijah was, and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Elijah was threatened by wicked queen, queen Jezebel and Ahab. He was persecuted in his time. He was a prophet who was hated by the wicked king and his wife. But when Malachi 4, 5 says, behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. 
The prophecy is not talking about the literal physical Elijah. Elijah, the prophet, is not going to be reincarnated and come back. Who is the prophecy referring to? Who is the Elijah that will precede the coming of the Messiah? Well, Jesus tells us in Luke 1, 13 and 17, first of all, we read, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. Verse 17, it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Who is the Elijah that is coming? It's John the Baptist. Jesus is, is saying the Elijah who's going to come and is, is going to be John the Baptist. And of him, truly, they did to him whatever they pleased. What did, Elijah, what did John the Baptist experience? He was proclaiming a message of repentance. He was believed by some, not by many. He was arrested. He was imprisoned by Herod. He was unjustly charged. He was framed and he was beheaded in prison. And no one in the community seemed to care. And so Jesus is calling attention to the fact that this Elijah that you're talking about, that the scribes have predicted, he is John the Baptist. And even as Jesus came and suffered as it was written of him, so this Elijah will suffer as it is written of him. This is not an easy passage, but what we need to see is that Jesus wants to call their attention again and again to suffering. The disciples have glory on the brain. They have seen Jesus transfigured. They have this notion of the Messiah coming as a ruling, reigning king to conquer the Romans. They can think of nothing but glory. Indeed, the Messiah will be glorified, but not just yet. Before he is glorified, he needs to suffer on the cross. And so what Jesus keeps doing is calling them away from glory to suffering. When they say, the scribes say that Elijah is going to come. And then he calls attention to the fact, yeah, but the son of man is going to suffer. And then he explains Elijah does come first. And he's talking about John the Baptist. But what happened to him? He suffered many things and he was treated with contempt. You see what Jesus is doing. He's trying to get their minds off of glory and onto suffering. Not because there isn't a glory, but to get to the glory, Jesus has got to go through the valley of humiliation and the cross. They're talking about the crown. Jesus is saying there's a cross before the crown. The road to glory for the Messiah, the Son of Man, is one of suffering and death. The path for his forerunner, John the Baptist, was one of suffering. And the path of his predecessor, Elijah, was one of suffering. You see, Jesus is connecting suffering and glory. That's the point of this passage. They had glory on the brain. Jesus is trying to remind them. Glory and suffering go together. There is glory for the Son of Man. They saw a foretaste of it in the Mount of Transfiguration. He will be glorified. He will be resurrected. He will ascend to the Father's right hand. He will be glorified. But before that happens, there needs to be suffering. 
The cross must precede the crown. That's the point. And see, that's what Jesus is doing in these days as he's focusing on explaining to the disciples what kind of a Messiah he is. Remember, the first half of Mark is proving that he is the Christ. How does he do that? By working all those miracles, by casting out demons, by his amazing teaching, until Peter gets to the conclusion, you are the Christ. Now Jesus is beginning to explain what kind of a Christ he is. He is a suffering servant Messiah, not a conquering king Messiah. And here he's doing that again. He's trying to get their minds off of glory and on to suffering. And so, did the disciples get it? They didn't at that time. They wouldn't understand until after Jesus was raised from the dead. They still will not get it. But we get it, don't we? We understand looking back that the glory of Christ was preceded by his sufferings. The crown required the cross because he had to earn the crown by fulfilling the work of the Messiah, which was to suffer for sinners. And so I want to make some applications to ourselves from this. If we understand the thrust of this passage, Jesus trying to wed two things, glory and suffering, the crown and the cross, they go together. The disciples were making a separation between these things. They couldn't see that connection. Jesus is connecting what they were dividing, the cross and the crown, suffering and glory. What should we take away from this? First, this passage gives us a true understanding of the biblical gospel. There is no glory to be found in Jesus apart from the cross. We do not glory in Jesus Christ because he was a wonderful moral and ethical teacher, although he was. We don't glory in Jesus because of his noble character and his service to mankind, although he did that. We don't glory in Jesus because he sacrificed himself for some good social cause. That's not the ground of our glory. Paul says it in Galatians 6.14, God forbid that we should glory or boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The glory of the gospel is the glory of the cross. The gospel is all about the cross. It's all about penal substitution. It's all about Jesus dying for sins. Do you know what that means? It means that the, the, the liberal message, the message of theological liberals and the message of liberation theology is no good, good news at all because theological liberals say what is needed is social reformation. They despise the cross. <clears throat> they despise penal substitution. And they say what is needed is just social reformation. That's not the gospel. It leaves out the cross. There's no glory in that because there's, no cross in that message. So I say this passage further confirms to us a true understanding of the gospel. The gospel is all about the cross. That's what we glory in. The passage also gives us a true understanding of Christian discipleship. You notice how Jesus joined suffering and glory together. That was true in his own experience. 
In order to be glorified, he had to suffer. That was true with John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the forerunner, he suffered. They did to him whatever they wanted. They imprisoned him. They killed him. They beheaded him. And that was true of Elijah, who went before. He suffered as a prophet of God. He was hated by the wicked king. He was called a troubler in Israel, and they were out to kill him. Here's the point, that anyone who will follow Jesus will face the persecution of the cross. Everyone who is a follower and believer in the true and living God will suffer persecution. That's been true throughout the history of mankind. That was true of the prophets. They hated the prophets. They killed the prophets. They hunted Elijah. That was true of John the Baptist, the forerunner to the Messiah. That was true of Jesus. And that will be true of all of his disciples for the remainder of time. That in order to be glorified with him, we will suffer with him. We will have to suffer with him. And let me just remind you of some of the many biblical texts that called us to that in discipleship. In Romans 8, in verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, If children heirs, also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. If you're to be glorified with Jesus as one of his, you need to suffer with him. In Philippians 3.10, Paul expresses his desire that I may know him, the fellowship of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection. He saw this as part of discipleship. Yes, the power of his resurrection. I've got a resurrected life. I've got a new life. I'm eventually going to be resurrected myself. That's part of it. But also part of it is the fellowship of his sufferings. In Colossians 1.24, the Apostle Paul says this. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That's fascinating. He's not saying there was anything lacking in the, in the suffering of Jesus to, to purchase um, forgiveness. There's nothing insufficient in the sacrifice of Christ, but he's saying that somehow the sufferings of Christ need to be fulfilled or carried on in the body of Christ, the, his people. And so Paul has a, a duty to, to continue the suffering of Christ by suffering himself. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul makes the statement, all who will live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Everyone. And in 1 Peter 4 and verse 13, the apostle Peter says, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. This passage we study teaches us something about true Christian discipleship. And it is this, that all Christians are called to suffer. And this would have been a great encouragement. Remember this letter uh, or this gospel was written to the Romans and the Romans would suffer horribly under the persecution of Nero what an encouragement for them to know that suffering is necessary, but on the other end of suffering, there will be glory. And so it should be for us. We're probably entering a season of persecution in our country, the likes of which we have never seen in our 240-year history. The handwriting is on the wall, isn't it? Christians are being persecuted in our day. 
Uh, we're not even accepted anymore. And so there's going to be suffering coming down for God's people. And we need to rejoice that suffering is necessary. But on the other end of suffering, there is glory. And then a final point to take away from this passage. I think we have a pointed reminder of the perpetual hostility of fallen men to God and his people. Jesus reminds them, it is written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Here is Jesus, pure incarnate love. Everything he did, he did selflessly in loving service to others. Pure incarnate truth. He only told the truth about God and the way to God. And what did our wicked race of mankind do to incarnate love and incarnate truth? Tortured him and killed him. What a statement about us as a fallen human race. When God became man and vulnerable to man, we tortured him and killed him. What does that say about the natural hostility in the human heart toward God and toward God's people? John the Baptist came before him announcing a message of repentance, calling people back to God. And he was imprisoned and beheaded. And long before that, in a time when Israel had strayed from God, God raised up a prophet Elijah who defied the idolatry of that day. And he was hunted by the king of Israel who wanted to kill him and exterminate him from the land. And so it has been throughout history that man's enmity to God, man's hostility to God has been abundantly manifested, hasn't it? Jesus said, we love the darkness rather than the light because our deeds are evil. I remember growing up, we we used to think about Adolf Hitler And it was like Hitler was one of a kind. I mean, Hitler is just so unique in his vile wickedness. Surely there won't be another Hitler. But the fact is there were many Hitlers before Hitler, right? Many dictators who slew many millions of people. And there have been many Hitlers after Hitler, even in our lifetime. Stalin and Mao Zedong. And Pol Pot, Idi Amin, Saddam Hussein, the Ayatollah Khomeini, the Kims in North Korea, Xi Jinping in China, Putin in Russia, and now the Taliban wiping out together hundreds of millions of people, killing people. We have not changed through the centuries, through the millennia, have we? Education has not improved the state of the human heart. We used to think people being beheaded back in in those days, how how barbaric people are being beheaded today by the demonic religion of, of, of Islam. We are no different with all of our education, all of our technology. Man is essentially the same in his his hostility to God. They hated Elijah. They hated John the Baptist. They hated Jesus. And they will hate all of God's people till the end of time. Why is it that? In Afghanistan, who are the ones especially being hunted down by the Taliban? Christians. And if you have even a Bible on app on your phone, you will be killed in Afghanistan. What a testimony to the hostility of the human race toward God. You know, I was thinking about 
critical race theory as it is um, intruding upon our nation into churches as a threat to the gospel. Critical race theory is grounded in Marxism. Marxism essentially says that, that everything is about class warfare. There are two classes, the oppressed and the oppressor. And that, of course, uh, uh, historic Marxism was economic. You had the, the wealthy and the poor, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Now we have critical theory applied in different ways, racially. So it is white people who are guilty of being white, and they're the oppressors, and the people of color are the oppressed. Now it's being understood in terms of gender. So those who are heteronormative and believe in male and female and are heterosexual, they're the oppressors, and the oppressed ones are the sexual minorities. And they're dividing mankind according to the oppressed and the oppressor. And I thought about it. The Bible makes a division in mankind as well, but it is not the Marxist division in any of the forms of critical theory. You know what the division is in the Bible? There are two humanities. There are two classes of people. There are the righteous and the wicked, the wise and the foolish, the saved and the unsaved. Those who believe in Jesus and promote his gospel and those who don't believe in Jesus and whether blatantly or subtly persecute those who believe in Jesus. That's the true division of humanity, believers and non-believers. And there are only two destinies. There's heaven and hell. There are only two roads, the road that leads to life and the road that leads to destruction. That's the true division. And the question for us is, which part of the humanity are, are you a part of? Are you one who has believed in Jesus and so you promote his gospel? Or are you one who is a persecutor of those who believe in Jesus? Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. There are only two ways. I trust that most of us here are on Jesus' side. We are believers in Jesus. We can expect persecution from the world, but we're told to rejoice because they persecuted him before us. I trust if any are not belonging to Jesus, that you will turn from your trust in yourself and put your trust in Jesus, become a disciple of Jesus. You will receive forgiveness of sins. You will receive a new heart. You receive the Holy Spirit. You'll receive the promise of heaven when you die. But along with it will come persecutions. That is assured. Let's pray. Our Father, if we have understood this passage correctly, we see, Lord Jesus, that you were trying to call your disciples back to the centrality of your suffering. Yes, there is glory, but the glory is on the other end of suffering. You suffered on the cross and then earned the crown of glory. And all of your people must suffer with you. But on the other end is the glory of welcome into your presence and an eternal kingdom in heaven and on the new earth. Help us, Lord, as we face increasing persecution in our land to rejoice in that suffering as partakers of it with you. And for any who do not know you, Lord, pray that you would turn their hearts from their idolatry to come to you, the living and true God, through your son, Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.
Well, finally, let's turn to our hymn book, and it is hymn number 500, Rock of Ages. It's an old hymn to a new tune, 500. Our Father, we thank you for the cross of your Son. Though it means bearing that cross ourselves, though it means the suffering of the hostility of a world against us, though it means persecution for us, we thank you that it also means glory. It means the forgiveness of all of our sins, the promise of eternal life with you on a renovated earth. Oh, we glory in the cross. We thank you for the cross, Lord Jesus. And we pray in 